Good morning, everyone. It is just a great joy to be with you again this morning. Such an honor. Um, uh, being up here reminds me of actually, you know, how badly I miss our pastor, though. And so we definitely want to pray for his healing and um, I believe he is scheduled to be back with us beginning in September, right? So, so let's pray for that. Um, but I've enjoyed hearing uh, our speakers, really, the people we brought in. It's really been a blessing, really, because I like seeing how God is working in other places in the world. And, and uh, just what a great testimony that, that we've heard uh, from a couple of our speakers there. And it's just amazing to see that. Um, uh, for me, I've, when I was studying theology in seminary, one of the classes I loved the most was church history because it's, it's really important that we see uh, how God operates in the lives of, of his people in history. And so that's why those testimonies are so powerful, at least to me, because you see God at work and it's truly an amazing thing. So I'm just grateful for those who have been able to speak with us and thankful for Ken Kerr. I believe Ken will be with us for the rest of uh, August uh, after today and He's going to be speaking from Ephesians, right? Uh, what did he say? It took him 12 sermons to get through the first chapter, right? I think there are 23 verses. So I'm covering like a whole chapter today. So we're kind of going in different directions here, but um, looking forward to having Ken back. Ephesians was the book where I cut my theological teeth, so to speak, where um, I became, as I like to say, kind of an uninformed Arminian to a more informed Calvinist. And um, so that's a really important book to me, and I'm really enjoying Ken's exposition of it. But we're going to be looking at Job. And again, Job is a testimony of someone's life. What we're seeing is, is someone's life who is affected by God, who, uh, in whom God's grace is doing a great work. So with that in mind, please turn your, take your Bibles and turn back to Job chapter 1, that chapter that, that Mike read for us this morning. Job chapter 1. Now, I'm not going to read the text again, uh, but I'll just refer to it as we go. Just to get started here this morning, I want us to um, talk about who we are as people. Because as I look around the room this morning, I see a group of very prosperous people. Many of you are doing well financially. You make a good living at your job. You have nice homes, nice vehicles, nice clothes, and you undoubtedly enjoy the comforts that being financially prosperous affords you. And by virtue of the fact that we all live in the United States of America, even the poorest amongst us has all that he needs and more. All of us live in relative comfort. Many of you have great families. You have a loving spouse, good children. Some of you have new children in your life. You have good parents who take care of you or who have taken care of you in the past. Some of you have recently either gotten married or some of you are getting married in the not too distant future. 
some of you have been blessed with many good friendships, good reputations, good health, and so on. The ways in which God has prospered us are many. And each person here experiences prosperity in a myriad of ways. But I also know that some of you, many of you, are going through trials. Some of you are going through especially difficult trials. Some of you are struggling financially. You've lost your jobs or had your salary cut. Some of you are having problems in your marriages, problems with your children, problems with your families that in some cases have you desperately looking for answers. Some of you may be facing illnesses, maybe life-threatening illnesses, or you have spouses or someone in your family who's facing a life-threatening illness. Just as God prospers us in many ways, he also tests us in many ways. And sometimes we are faced with trials that seem overwhelming. Well, I can say this to you with all confidence and faith. No matter what you are experiencing in life right now, whether it is a time of enjoying the fruits of prosperity or whether it is a season of suffering, God has ordained every detail that you are going through. He has ordained every laugh, every tear. And if you love him, he has ordained all of these things for your good. All of these things for your good. Now, with respect to prosperity and suffering, I could have walked into any room filled with this many people and basically said the same thing that I said to you. As you know, prosperity and suffering, they're common to all people. We all experience life's blessings and difficulties. We all have good times. We all have bad times. But I'm not just speaking to anybody this morning. I'm speaking to a group of people who have gathered to worship God. I'm speaking to a group of people who profess to trust Christ And because of this, our outlooks in the midst of prosperity and in suffering should be radically different from that of the world. Who we are as people in the midst of prosperity and suffering says a great deal about the legitimacy and quality of our faith. Now, unfortunately, the church has not always given us solid examples to follow in this regard. We see, for example, in Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea, a wealthy church that became blindly enchanted by the fruits of its prosperity. What was the result? The result was lukewarm, half-hearted service and worship. Well, I would like to say that what happened in Laodicea is an isolated event and that such half-heartedness is the rare exception to the sincere, wholehearted worship that is typically offered to God. But that's simply not the case. That is simply not the case. The fact is, the half-heartedness that we see in Laodicea is the norm, not the exception. And it is a symptom of the faithlessness that comes from superficial professions of faith. Simply stated, many professing Christians in our day lack genuine faithfulness. And this faithlessness manifests itself in half-heartedness in times of prosperity. Likewise, 
in uh, times of trials and suffering, faithlessness manifests itself in feelings of injustice and, and self-centered despair and hopelessness. In trials, a superficial saint, he feels victimized. And so he begins to murmur and complain. And if the trial is especially difficult, if God removes some important idol in his life, his grief turns to anguish, to bitter anguish. Well, let me add that even genuine believers are not beyond being caught up in their prosperity and suffering. As former idolaters, as former idolaters, we all struggle with the sins of those idols. We still struggle with them, and consequently, we can find ourselves distracted by the cares of the world or even temporarily fixated on them. The result is a, a similar half-heartedness in prosperity and despair and suffering that we see amongst unbelievers. Well, that brings us to Job. Job 1, it provides us with an example of what genuine faithfulness looks like in times of both prosperity and suffering. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Job, Job wasn't perfect, and even Job, he begins to uh, stray a little bit down the road here. But what we see in this first chapter is a man who is, is faithful in both uh, his his greatest prosperity, prosperity that, that few of us could even imagine, and suffering that few people ever have to endure. Through Job's example, we see how one empowered by the transforming grace of God should respond in both the greatest prosperity and the darkest of trials. And so my proposition to you this morning is simply this. As believers graced by God, we must follow the example that we see uh, here in Job, the examples that he sets in both times of faithfulness and in times of prosperity, um, uh, in times of prosperity and in times of suffering. We must follow that example of faithfulness. And to help us navigate through the text this morning, I've divided my outline into three very simple parts. First, we will look at Job's faithfulness and prosperity. Secondly, we will look at the celestial purposes behind Job's suffering. And thirdly, we will look at Job's faithfulness in suffering. So first, let us look at Job's prosperity. Um, Our text focuses on three ways in which Job prospered. First of all, Job was blessed with good children. Job was blessed with good children. Verse 2 tells us seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Now, it is appropriate that in listing Job's uh, outward prosperity, the writer mentioned Job's children first. They are the chief part of his prosperity. Of all the things of value, his children are the most precious. In verse 4, we read that Job's sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, this tells us that Job doesn't just have a, a large family. He has a good family. Job has a good family. Psalm 133.1 says, 
Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. This psalm perfectly uh, describes the harmony in Job's household. Each day, one of the seven brothers hosted the day's main meal, and the other brothers and sisters would all come together and break bread with one another. Now, the writer of Job tells us this because he wants us to see the unity amongst Job's children. He wants us to see the, the love and the care that they have for one another. He wants us to see the thoughtfulness that Job's sons have for their sisters. In Old Testament times, having good, healthy children was considered a mark of divine favor. And, and for seven of them, by the way, to be sons was symbolic. That was symbolic of perfection. And to have ten children was symbolic of a multitude. When it came to having children, and this is what, what is being communicated here, Job's situation is about as good as it gets. Job's situation is about as good as it gets. So Job was blessed with good children. Job was also blessed with great wealth. In Old Testament times, particularly during the age of the patriarchs and in areas in and around the ancient Near East, wealth was often measured in livestock. This is one of the many reasons that some scholars feel that Job probably lived around or slightly before the time of Abraham. According to verse 3, Job's possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, which, by the way, were more valuable than male donkeys because of their milk, and very many servants. The author of Job is giving us a picture of something that we would expect to see in the household of an Arab prince. Although we cannot uh, necessarily ascribe an accurate modern value, uh, numerical figure, to Job's wealth, the multitude of livestock and servants described here let us know that Job owned a vast and valuable estate, something we would only see amongst the richest of the rich. So he had a good family. He had great wealth. Well, Job was also a man of renown and respect. Notice that at the end of verse 3, the author describes Job as the greatest of all people of the East. The word translated greatest, as is used in this context, it refers more than, uh, than just the greatness of Job's wealth. It's more than that. It carries the idea of power, of, of nobility. Uh, without doubt, whether official or unofficial, Job had a great deal of authority within the area in which he lived. He was a man of high honor and esteem. People looked up to him. They respected him above all others. That's the idea. Now, here's a man, wealthy, has great children. People look up to him. As we might expect, when you see a situation like that, just as we saw in a place like Laodicea where they had great wealth, it would be easy to be distracted by all of the the blessings that Job had. But Job proves himself faithful. First, Job demonstrates faithfulness in his moral integrity. 
Notice in the middle of verse 1 that Job is described as being blameless and upright. Blameless and upright. The word translated as blameless carries with it the idea of completeness, sincerity, innocence. It is used to describe people of high moral integrity. It does not mean that Job was sinless now. We know that's not the case. However, as one who was obviously touched by the grace of God, one who was uh, obviously experienced that, that life-transforming faith, Job's character was lacking for nothing. Likewise, the word translated as upright literally refers to, to straightness or levelness. It is used to describe those who are righteous, those who are upright in heart and conduct. It refers to those whose behavior is consistent with the high ethical standards of their profession. So Job demonstrates his faithfulness by the fact that he is blameless and upright, and he is referred to that by God. Secondly, Job demonstrates faithfulness in his religious character. Notice at the end of verse 1, Job is described as one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, in a sense, the, this description of Job is synonymous with his integrity. However, whereas blameless and upright really refer to moral character, describing Job as one who feared God and turned away from evil, it is descriptive of a religious character of which his moral integrity is undoubtedly a fruit. According to Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Likewise, Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We read in Luke 1.50 that mercy is unto generations and generations of those who fear God. We read in 2 Corinthians 7.1 that we are to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As these verses affirm, fear of God is at the center of religious piety. And as we see in our text, Job feared God, and because of this, he turned away from evil. Now, just as an aside, what a stark contrast this is from what we often see amongst those who profess Christ today. In this age where there is little regard for the, the seriousness of sin or, and even less regard for the holiness of God, the fear of God is not something most people, even most professing believers, take seriously. This is precisely why sin runs rampant in our churches today and why church discipline is severely lacking or even non-existent in many churches. But as we see, this was not the case with Job. So... We see Job's moral character. We see his religious character. But thirdly, Job demonstrates his faithfulness in his worship. 
in his worship. Notice in verse 5 that says, When the days of uh, his children's feasting had run their course, Job would sin and consecrate them, and he would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, the scope of what I want to cover this morning, it uh, does not allow me to get into um, any kind of depth with these uh, verses. But I do want to call your attention to four important points that I think we can draw from Job's example in worship. First, our text says that Job would sin and consecrate his children. Now, we cannot be sure of the details of just how Job consecrated his children, but we do know that it was intended to be a preparation, a preparation for worship. It was intended to be a preparation for the worship that Job was about to offer to God and for the burnt offerings he was about to offer on his children's behalf. It likely involved some type of command for self-examination and a call for repentance. Now, just bringing this up, because in light of this, I would humbly ask each of you, how much thought, how much effort do you give to not only worshiping God, but preparing for worship? Do you spend time preparing for worship? You think about this, you know, I'm, I'm not getting into politics, but if you were about to see the president, you would probably prepare for that, wouldn't you? In some capacity, maybe. So why would we not do that when we come to worship God? Right? Make sense? Secondly, notice that Job offers burnt offerings to God. Burnt offerings are amongst the earliest form of sacrifices made to God, and they were instituted shortly after the fall of Adam. And the fact that Job worships in this way tells us that his worship is not some man-made invention of his own heart. It's not some man-made invention of his own heart. Job takes care to worship, to express his worship in the way that is prescribed by God. Does that make sense? Thirdly, notice that Job arises early in the morning to offer these burnt offerings. Now, you get the feeling here that Job is approaching this aspect of worship with a sense of urgency, don't you? There's a sense of urgency. It is a priority above other things. And finally, this passage as a whole speaks to the fact that Job's relationship with his children revolves around his relationship with God and not the other way around. As a godly father, Job's primary concern is for his children's spiritual well-being. He trembles at the notion that they may have sinned in their hearts. Think about that. He trembles at the notion that they may have sinned. Uh, Not to put my boy on the spot, but I don't have to tremble at the notion that he may have sinned, okay? I see it. We all do, right? Think about that. Think about that. Dear saints, what a beautiful picture we have here of what a godly family should look like. 
particularly how a godly father should lead his household by example and how, how, how he should be proactive in pursuing their spiritual well-being or pursuing the spiritual well-being of his children. What a beautiful picture that is. And again, just as an aside, that's food for thought for us. You know, how are we leading our families as fathers? Now, in looking at the way or the many ways in which Job demonstrates his faithfulness and prosperity, I would humbly ask you, does your life in prosperity resemble the faithfulness of Job? Is your life uh, in prosperity centered around God? Is your life in prosperity truly centered around God? Is your life morally and religiously on par with your profession of faith? Is your worship and service to God, is it wholehearted? Now let me say this as gently and respectfully as I know how. If the height of our religious experience is coming here and you know, warming one of these chairs with our backside... <laughs> we have work to do. I'll just say that. Your life probably does not center around God if that is the height of your religious uh, experience. When we allow the busyness of our schedules to keep us from praying together as we should, from fellowshipping as we should, or from being active in church ministry, we have to ask ourselves, where are our priorities? Where are our priorities? Also ask yourselves, does my marriage, does my relationship with my children, with my family, my careers, my hobbies, resources, do all of these things exist for the glory of God, and am I being faithful in using them to that end? I fear that if we honestly evaluate our faithfulness in these areas and and other areas, we would discover that half-heartedness is more common even in our own lives than we like to think. In a sermon on a related issue, Charles Spurgeon once warned his congregation, saying, quote, There are a great many men that know little that know a little how to be abased, that do not know how at all to abound. When they are put down in the pit with Joseph, they look up and see the starry promise and the hope for an escape. But when they are put on top of the pinnacle, their heads grow dizzy and they are ready to fall. There was once a square piece of paper put into George Whitfield's pulpit by way of notice to this effect, quote, a young man who has lately inherited a large fortune requests the prayers of the congregation. Right well was the prayer asked, for when we go up the hill, we need prayer that we may be kept steady. Going down the hill of fortune, there is not half the fear of stumbling. The Christian far oftener disgraces his profession in prosperity than when he is being abased. Saints, we know this. Living in prosperity is distracting. 
Living in prosperity is distracting. Living in prosperity has a way of getting us to invest the best of ourselves in temporal things, right? It has a way of binding us to the, uh, or blinding us to the poverty of our true spiritual conditions. Therefore, living as faithful Christians in prosperity demands that we exercise extreme discernment in assessing the quality of our moral and religious characters. It demands that we take great care in not allowing ourselves to become enchanted by the charms of wealth and comfort. It demands that we not allow our primary focus to be taken away from God and that we not allow the things of this world to become our source of hope and comfort and refuge. It demands that we be especially proactive in making sure that God is our rock and that he continues to remain the the center of our universe. Well, this brings me to the next portion of our outline, the celestial purpose behind Job's suffering. Beginning in verse 6, we read, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. In this portion of the text, we are introduced to a meeting of God's celestial council. The angels appear before God, presumably to give account of their works, and Satan appears with them, giving account of his own works. Afterwards, beginning in verse 8, the subject of the dialogue switches to God's servant, as the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, man, there's a lot packed in here, but there are two key key things I want us to notice in this portion of the text. The first thing, and this is really important, it is God, not Satan, who is ultimately the ordaining force behind Job's trials. Do we understand that? It is God, not Satan, who is the ordaining force behind Job's trials. Notice that it is God who initiates the dialogue, and it is God who calls Jacob or who calls Job to Satan's attention. And it is God who gives Satan permission to bring this suffering on Job. Satan has come up with this evil scheme against Job. But he does so only because God has ordained these things for Job's life. Even Job recognizes that his suffering comes via the sovereign charge of God. We see this later in verse 21 when Job exclaims, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. We also see this in the next chapter when Job says to his wife, who by the way 
tells him to curse God and kill himself. That's a nice wife right there, isn't it? But what does he say to her? He says, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? Now, think about this, and I want to ask you, as a point of application, isn't it a comfort to know that God is sovereign over our trials? Isn't that a comfort to you, to know that your trials are in the hand of a God who loves you. What a blessing. What, what a comfort. Imagine what our suffering would be like if the devil were not constrained by the hands of God. Imagine that. Imagine the horror life would be if the adversary had free reign to do with us all that he willed. We wouldn't stand a chance, would we? Isn't it a comfort to know instead that our suffering is in the hands of one who loves us? Isn't it a comfort to know that whatever may come in the way of suffering, that it is by God's design that he has ordained that for our good? What a blessing. Second thing I want us to notice, and again, this is important. In this portion of the text, it is God himself who testifies concerning Job's faithfulness. God himself, in his own words, is testifying concerning Job's faithfulness. Merely by referring to Job as my servant, God is affirming that uh, Job is indeed one of his true and genuine followers. But God takes it even further. Our Lord validates Job's piety through his own spoken words by affirming all of those attributes in Job that we looked at earlier. Therefore, and again, this is important, when Satan calls into question the sincerity of Job's faithfulness, he is not merely challenging Job's piety, he is actually challenging the veracity of God's testimony concerning Job. You see that? He's basically saying, no, God, this is not true. What you're saying about Job is not right. And furthermore, By allowing Satan to test Job in such a harsh way, God is not merely looking to prove the genuineness of Job's faithfulness. He is looking to prove prove the legitimacy of his own testimony and to show the devil to be a liar. Do you see that? Job has no idea why this trial happens. He never does. And yet we're seeing this working in the, again, the uh, celestial council that God is so concerned about the veracity, about the uh, uh, trueness of his own testimony that he allows these uh, trials to happen in Job's life, right? God takes his own word very seriously, doesn't he? His own testimony very seriously. Now, some of you may be asking yourselves, what does this mean to me? Why is this important? How is what God and Satan are doing in Job's life relevant? Well, as I pointed out earlier, we are all going to go through seasons of trials. Suffering is a uh, 
certain reality for all of us. Sometimes this suffering will be brought about as a natural consequence of our own sin. Sometimes we will suffer the scourge of God uh, uh, because we are being disobedient, because we are walking in the flesh. However, there are also occasions when, like Job, we suffer for reasons that we cannot understand. Mercifully, mercifully, few of us ever have to endure in this life the level of suffering that Job endured. However, if you trust in God, there are going to be occasions when the celestial council convenes and God says, have you considered my servant? And you can insert your name right there. When these occasions come, know first of all that two opposing forces are at work. One desires your destruction. The other, he desires your good. Why is that important? Because it should inspire us to faithfulness. It should inspire us to faithfulness. Secondly, and again, I really want to drive this point home. Your suffering, maybe it doesn't revolve around you. Okay? Your suffering doesn't revolve around you. There's something else going on. There's something bigger happening. Unfortunately, in the midst of suffering, we often become so self-centered and enslaved by our own misery that we forget that we are pieces of a bigger picture. Saints, the just and holy God we serve is using our suffering for his purposes, and we need to trust that he knows what he's doing. Does that make sense? Well, this brings us to, to the third part of our outline, Job's faithfulness and suffering. Beginning in verse 13, our text reads, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck, them, uh, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, the servants, and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, notice what happens here. With the exception of four servants who are spared so that they may be the messengers of bad news, all of the things mentioned earlier in the chapter in describing Job's prosperity are taken away. All of them. All of his most beloved possession, his children, they're taken away. 
All of those things used in measuring his wealth, all of his oxen, donkeys, sheep, his camels and servants, all of those things are destroyed. And of course, and it doesn't say this explicitly in the text, but as we keep reading in Job, we know that his good name is taken away. Again, as becomes later evident in the book, particularly at the arrival of Job's three infamous friends, Job goes from being a man of renown and respect to being a man that people looked upon with pity and suspicion. The very possessions that, according to Satan, God allegedly uh, allegedly uses to purchase Job's devotion are taken away in an abrupt and merciless manner. So how does Job react? Verse 20. First, Job grieves. Then he then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. Tearing one's robe and shaving one's head, that was a common expression of deep grief amongst the inhabitants of the ancient Near East. And certainly, if anyone ever had cause to grieve and feel sorrow, Job has it in this situation. Imagine this. Imagine this. However, it is important to notice that we make a distinction between grief and despair. Between sorrow and hopelessness. Job grieves, but he doesn't lose hope. Now I ask you, how can this be? How can a man endure such suffering without losing hope and recessing into the depths of despair? The answer is simply this, Job trusted God. Job trusted God. His faith is not some hollow profession, but it is genuine confidence in the Lord and and genuine trust in his providence. Thus, instead of cursing God as Satan suggested he would do, we see at the beginning, uh, we see beginning at the end of verse 20, that after grieving, Job fell down to the ground and worshiped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Notice here that just as he does in his prosperity and suffering, Job demonstrates faithfulness in the same three ways. By falling to the ground uh, and worshiping and, and blessing the name of the Lord, Job demonstrates faithfulness by his worship. When he refrains from sinning, he demonstrates faithfulness by his moral integrity. And when he refuses to charge God with wrong, he demonstrates faithfulness in his religious character. It's interesting, Satan wreaks havoc in Job's life, essentially removing every source of temporal joy. But what can he not take away? He cannot take away Job's faith. He cannot take away Job's faith. And if your faith is genuine, if it is real, he cannot take away your faith. No matter what he brings. No matter what trials he puts in your life. Job 
Job 1 is a biographical sketch of a man who built his house upon a rock. It is a beautiful illustration of a man whose real prosperity is invested in heavenly treasures. Let me ask you, where is the bulk of your treasure invested? Where's the bulk of your treasure invested? On what type of foundation have you built your home? Suppose that God took all your wealth. Suppose he took all your comforts of life. Would your faith endure? Suppose that God took your health. Would you still trust him? Suppose that he took your family, your precious children. Would you fall down and worship our Lord or would you curse him? You know, one of the oldest surviving recordings of Beethoven's Fifth Concerto was recorded in Berlin in 1944 during the Second World War. In this recording, you can literally hear the explosions of war going on in the distant background. Now, imagine not only hearing this this piece of music, imagine being there as that's being recorded. You're in the midst of the, the trials of war that's happening all around you. And yet you're in a place where you cannot help but be captivated by the beauty of life that is being expressed in the music you're hearing. This doesn't mean you're not aware of the war going on outside or that it, you're not somehow constrained by its reality. However, as this music is playing, your heart is so fixed upon its, its splendor that the war outside becomes background noise. Saints, when held up against the beauty and joy of heaven that awaits us, our suffering is just background noise. Our suffering is background noise. Romans 8.18, Paul tells us that the sufferings of this present time are what? Not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. This does not mean we do not grieve. It doesn't mean that we do not feel sorrow. But if we are faithful, if our hearts are truly fixed on God, if he is truly our rock, if he is our treasure, then he alone will be our refuge and hope. And we will be compelled to honor him no matter what the circumstances in both times of of prosperity and in times of suffering. John Calvin, who is certainly no stranger to suffering, he writes about this in the Institutes. And this uh, quote, I believe, is in the bulletin. He says, If there is no harshness in poverty, no torment in diseases, no sting in disgrace, what fortitude or moderation would there be in bearing them with indifference? But since each of these, with an inborn bitterness, by its very nature, bites at the hearts of us all, the fortitude of the believing man is brought to light if, tried by the feeling of such bitterness, however grievously he is troubled with it, yet resisting, he surmounts it. Here his forbearance reveals itself. If sharply pricked, he is still restrained by the fear of God from breaking into any intemperate act. Here his cheerfulness shines if, wounded by sorrow and grief, 
He rests in the spiritual consolation of God. Saints, this is the sincere desire for all of us here this morning. That in seasons of grief, we find our consolation in God. That our hearts not be wet, uh, led away by the enchantments of prosperity or, or cor- crushed under the, the weight of suffering. It is my desire that, as he does with Job, God may testify to the sincerity of our faithfulness because it proves itself in times of both suffering and prosperity. Job's faith endured because he built his house upon the rock of God's grace. May we, in the strength of Christ and by the power of his grace, do likewise. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for the example of Job. We thank you for this text. And I just pray, Lord, that it would be edifying to this body. I pray, Lord, that we would um, uh, look to Job's example and that we would, um, uh, both in times of prosperity and in times of suffering, Lord, that our hope would rest in you, that you would be the... the, uh, uh, true treasure of our heart in all circumstances. Father, we love you. We praise you. We pray for your blessings on this family, on on the families represented here uh, this morning. I pray that you would be with each one. Again, I pray that these words would um, uh, just do a work of grace as you see fit. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.